I want to encourage you guys to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, as I've mentioned, and we're beginning a new series of sermons tonight in the book of Exodus, specifically, we'll be looking at these 10 words, sometimes referred to as the 10 commandments. Um, Before we get into this and before we read this passage of scripture and another, I did want to mention something I forgot to mention earlier, but... Tonight, um, somebody who's very dear to me, who's also Mandy's cousin, Josh Vignell, was here to help us in worship tonight. We had a series of unforeseen events that caused us to lean on some friends, call in some favors and whatnot, and uh, Josh was willing to come and serve with our worship team tonight. Josh leads worship at a local church, and one of the, um, the great gifts of being a church in our community in particular is so many good churches that are around us, and I know this on good authority because most of them are pastored by very, very dear friends of mine. So it's a gift to be able to call on friends. So Josh, thank you so much for being with us. Um, We're going to begin this sermon series in the 10 words, sometimes called the 10 commandments. And before we read tonight's sermon passage and our New Testament text that will travel alongside, I wanted to just very briefly tell you just a quick pastoral rationale for getting into this section of scripture with you. First of all, The Ten Commandments found in the book of Exodus in a lot of ways, for certain forms, the bedrock foundation of the Bible's moral instruction. So many themes from these ten words will travel throughout the pages of the scriptures. So understanding these 10 words that are spoken in Exodus 20 becomes very central to understanding the Bible as a whole. There's a second reason, and this is more of a pastoral reason, and this is something I've been thinking about for, for a lot of years, and so I'll just put it to you like this. I'm convinced just as a pastor, specifically as the pastor of Grace Fellowship, I'm convinced that we don't always have a very good understanding of obedience, Just what it means to know God and therefore obey him is just something I'm convinced, myself included, we don't have a good grasp of. And so it was sort of on my heart to, I don't know, take aim at that in some ways. So over the next 10 weeks together, we're going to be thinking deeply together about what it means to know God and to obey him. So that's why we're here. So I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And as is our custom, I'll pair this with a reading from the opposite testament. In this case, it'll be Matthew chapter 22. So I'll read from Exodus, and then you can listen to Matthew 22, and I'll pray. Let's listen carefully to God's word to us and for us tonight. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And from Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, we ask that your spirit would travel alongside your word just as you have promised in order to shine light on it, to illuminate it. Lord, we ask that at the same time as you've promised, that your word traveling alongside your spirit would have its effect in our hearts that you would have for us. Lord, would you shine light on dark places in our hearts? And would you use these words to give us great hope in our Lord Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I'm a firm believer that our lives are not mostly comprised of these dramatic, massively impactful moments, but instead our lives are mostly comprised of these quiet, ordinary moments of God's work in very normal things in our lives. But having said that, there are some big, important moments that shape our lives, and there are some big, important moments that have shaped my life. It's just that my big, important moments come at weird times, and I'm going to tell you one of those today. So it was 2008. Okay, I was a seminary student in my first year, and I was... um, taking a Greek class where we were learning to translate the New Testament. Now, just really quickly, um, just because some of us have seminary training and can read Greek and Hebrew does not necessarily mean that we understand the Bible better than anybody. Um, It just means we've been trained to pay attention to the details of it in a different way. Okay? But I was learning some Greek, and at the end of that semester, you began to take a stab at translating through the book of 1 John. 1 John's Greek is easier, for lack of a better term. Now, I'm on dangerous territory here because there are people in this room who are way better at languages than I am. So just you guys, you know who you are, and just go with me here, okay? Um, 1 John's easier, so we're translating through 1 John. I remember this assignment where I had to translate my way through 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. And I'm sitting here, I'm looking at 1 John, and I'm reading the Greek words, and I'm starting to pin them on my piece of paper, and it, it goes something like this. And this is to love God, to keep his commandments. And I'm translating through the Greek words, and I see the next line, and it says, in effect, and oh, by the way, his commandments are not, the word was burdensome. And in that moment, 14 years ago, Something dawned on me, and it wasn't like it dawned on me for the first time. 
But it's like the force of the idea came and sat on me in a particularly powerful way. I wonder if you know what I mean. And the force of the idea that sat on me in a particularly powerful way was the idea that I had been thinking of obedience to God all wrong. And see if you can relate with me here. See, I conceived of obedience to God to be something kind of like this. God's God. I'm not God. God knows everything. He's the greatest and the best. And he has things that he wants me to do, to say, to act like, or to not do, to not say, to not act like. And I guess that I, I guess I will do the right thing and I'll obey him. And I will probably mean I won't necessarily get to do some of the things that I naturally wished I could do, but I'll be a good man and I'll suck it up and I'll buckle down and I'll be obedient. And as I was reading and translating this, it dawned on me with force that I had been thinking of that exactly upside down. See, the Bible will try to plead with us throughout its pages something more like this. God is God, and he's made you to live a certain way. And if you obey him, you will know freedom. You will know joy. You will find the you that you were supposed to be. You will have life. You'll be coming alive more and more all the time, and you'll actually really enjoy being obedient to him. You'll like it. It's a good life to live that way. And see, that's what Exodus 20 begins to show us. So we're going to get into this from this place of pastoral burden that we don't necessarily understand obedience. We have to begin to think of obedience to God as an invitation to joy in life and gladness. So here's how we're going to go about this as we go today. This sermon's really going to have four parts to it, okay? Four movements to it. I'm going to talk about four distinct ideas, and I'm going to tell you what they are. First of all, I want to talk to you about the context of these words. These 10 words that the Lord begins to speak, they come out of a context, and I'm going to share that with you, okay? Secondly, I'm going to talk about the words themselves in this first commandment. So this first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm going to talk about those words themselves and what they're trying to tell us. The third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you and I about our hearts, particularly the way our hearts are a factory that creates constantly other things to worship. And then fourthly, I'm going to try to issue you the invitation that I think this text issues. So the context, the words themselves, our hearts as factories, and then forth an invitation. And as we walk our way through these four parts, full disclosure, all the cards on the table, 
I'm hoping you get an impression from this sermon tonight. As you listen tonight, I'm hoping you gain this sense that you don't really need another God. The one you worship is all satisfyingly sufficient. You don't need another one. That's the main thing I want you to catch from this tonight. You guys ready? Okay. First of all, the context of these words. Look with me again at Exodus 20. Verse one, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The context of the 10 words, the 10 commandments, the context from which these words flow is from a story, specifically the story of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. These words are not arbitrary rules that the deity has kind of come up with. But instead, they flow from an entire story. And this story is the story of the Lord God rescuing his people. There's a couple things I want you to notice. Look at verse two, I am the Lord your God. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the Lord will be mentioned and the Lord will be referred to as your God. So what what we're supposed to gain a sense of as readers and as hearers We're supposed to understand that we're not talking about some arbitrary deity in the sky somewhere. We're talking about a personal, covenantal, in the mix with his people, relational God, a specific one, in particular, the Lord. He's a God who wants relationship with his people. Secondly, look again with me at verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, it was God, it was, it was the Lord who looked upon his people in their crying and in their distress and in their sorrow and in their pain as they were enslaved in Egypt and he remembered them. He remembered them. And in the Bible, when God remembers something, it's different than when you and I remember something. When you and I remember something, we say, oh, I just remembered. We mean there was something not in our mind and we suddenly thought of it. In the language of the Old Testament, when God remembers something, it's not that he didn't know something or something had slipped his mind and he suddenly thought of it. In the language of the Old Testament, when God remembers something, it means he now decides to act upon something he's promised. And see, God had promised, he had made promises to this people, Israel, And they were enslaved in Egypt and they were crying and they were groaning and they were straining and they were hurting and they were suffering and he remembered them and he moved to rescue. Now, when they were crying, they weren't crying out the hymn. See, he acted upon them with grace, with a unmerited favor toward them. He looked upon them with this kind of one-way mercy towards them. He set, we're told, his love upon them in order to rescue them out of their pain. So when you know this is the context, this relational context and this rescue from slavery context, it suddenly makes any notion of obeying God completely outside of the category of earning anything. 
See, they weren't going to obey him in order to earn his love because his love had already been set upon them to rescue them before they even knew even how to obey him. Earning goes out the window here. But isn't that so hard for us? Don't we always think in terms of earning? Can, can I make this like really real for you personally? Y'all, I'm going to be very honest with you. There are times when I'll be sitting there at my little seat or standing there and we're singing songs and I've got this moment where I've got to come up here and preach. And there are moments when I calculate in my head, will this go good or bad? And then I start thinking, have I been obedient to God this week? Have I been kind to my kids? Have I been nice to Mandy? Because I wonder if that's the case. When I come up here, it will go good for me. Or conversely, there are times where I know my failures and they're really clear before me when I walk in here on a Sunday and I assume, oh, when I go up there, I bet it will go badly. It's hardwired in our souls to think in terms of earning. And with this Lord in his gracious act to save a people, the idea of earning is completely out the window. In other words, these commands will be all grace. Think about it. God's commands are not burdensome. They're all gracious gifts to you and me. God's commands are gracious gifts to you and me. See, ancient peoples, and it's true today too, ancient peoples never knew where they stood with the deity. They never knew if the pagan deities, if they had accidentally not worshiped them enough or prayed enough, and they were always constantly in fear that maybe they would do something wrong to offend a God somewhere, and bad luck or bad misfortune would come upon them, and they lived in a constant state of anxiety about if they had pleased God or not. But see, this... God, the Lord, he kindly and graciously took them out of that anxious game and gave to them clear expectations of what it would mean to know him. Just like I know that there are people out there that like to know what to expect, I know there are people out there that really hunger for clear expectations. And listen to me, with God, you have them. So look with me again at verse one and two. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. One last thing I want you to note. The reason we're calling this sermon series the 10 words is because in verse one, we're we're told that God speaks these words. And what's really interesting, and Old Testament scholars have pointed this out, when God created the world in Genesis one, he spoke 10 words. He He said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, it appears 10 times. 
And when God is forming a people, he's doing an act of new creation to create a people, and he does it again with 10 words. So that's kind of the context of all of this. Now, it's gonna get a little more intense. Let's talk about the words themselves in this commandment. Look at verse three. And you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. In the original language of the Old Testament, it's seven words. And the words literally say this. You shall have no other gods before my face. In other words, you shall have no other gods in my presence. See, you and I, when we hear a phrase like, you shall have no other gods before me, do we not think in terms of rank? In the English, you shall have no other gods before me. We, we're thinking in terms of rank. And we think, we think what's being told to us is something like this. Um, I'm going to have my family, and I'm going to have my work, and I'm going to have my social life. I'm going to have my relationship with my children. I'm going to have the things I'm interested in. But as long as I put God above that as first priority, I'm faithful to this command. And this this first word is not about priorities. It's about total loyalty. No other gods before my face is not about having these things in our life and then we'll work the Lord in there somewhere on our list of priorities. See, instead, the Lord is saying something like this. I am God. There is no other beside me. Your your loyalty to me is everything in your life completely. I stand apart from anything else in your life. Oh, yeah, and by the way, yeah, you're going to have jobs, and you're going to have relationships, and you're going to have marriage, and you're going to have these other things. And in all these things, you are going to be playing out what loyalty to me looks like in every piece of it. You see the difference The Lord is not on a priority list. He exists alone and demands, demands, demands as a gift to us our entire loyalty to him. And then that loyalty to him gets worked out in these ways. See, the essence of every sin in our life The essence of every sin in our life, I'm convinced, is is the sin of essentially trying to work the Lord somehow in our list of things we have going on. And by the way, the fact that we're trying that, to work the Lord somehow, to, to squeeze him in somewhere in all the things we have going on in life, the fact that we're trying to do that is probably the reason you're so deeply exhausted and tired. Because it doesn't work. It's exhausting. And the invitation here is for something more freeing. And we'll say more about that in a moment. So I told you about the context. I told you about the words themselves in this commandment. And then thirdly, I want to talk to you about our hearts and our hearts as a factory. 
See, in other words, as you've sat here and listened, you might have had the thought go through your head, and it might have gone something like this. Um, hey, Joel, we, we don't worship other gods. I mean, we're here. It's a Christian church. Like, like, we don't worship other gods. And to that, I would say to you, yeah, you're right. And then I might say to you, really? Is that true? So for example, let's start with the, yeah, you're right. So, so you're right. You're right. Very few of you spent 15 minutes in quiet time this morning poring over the pages of the Quran. Very few of you spent time over the weekend alone doing some kind of chant that's associated with Hinduism. So yeah, you're, you're right. You don't, you don't worship other gods. But I'd also say to you, is that really true? See, John Calvin talked about how the human heart is an idle factory, always looking for things to worship. Martin Luther called a God in our life, anything that we love or we fear or we trust, we hope in, we look to for good or we run to in distress, anything other than the Lord himself. Just a moment ago, we confessed our sin together. And the confession was in there was the fact that we give our hearts to lesser things. And throughout the pages of the scriptures and throughout the history of our faith, whenever God's people give their hearts to things that are lesser, give their hope, give their fear to things that are lesser, there's a word for that, and the word for that is idolatry. And it can be anything. It can be work, it can be achievement at work, it can be climbing the ladder of career, it can be certain relationships that just consume us, it's the only thing we're fearing or hoping in, it can be fitness, it can be time, it can be money, it can be a spouse, it can be your children. I wanna tell you honestly, just a way that it worked out in my life, and I came to see it. But there was a season in Mandy and I's marriage where I, I don't even know how to explain this to you other than like I worshiped Mandy's happiness. Like if Mandy could be perfectly happy all the time, then I felt okay, like with my, myself as a person. If she could be completely free of any stress, if I could ward it all off, I felt like I was worth something as a man and as a husband. If I felt like she was ever disappointed or frustrated or, I don't know, normal human things, like sad <laughs> or tired, I instinctively assumed it was my fault and that I needed to work quickly to fix the thing. And through a dear friend and counselor, he said to me, why are you worshiping her? And I said, what? <laughs> I'm a pastor. I don't worship other gods. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I mean, I, I think I literally said, I'm a pastor. 
And I probably don't have to tell you what it did to our marriage. It burdened it with a ton of pressure. And I had to realize that I could let Mandy be a normal person. And I could survive her being unhappy. I wonder what it is for you. You run to in distress. You expect from all good. You hope in. You fear. You love. Your heart's affections move toward something other than the Lord. Because Martin Luther, John Calvin, St. Augustine, St. Teresa, and many others would tell us, that is the God you're worshiping. No matter how many times you come in here. Finally, the invitation. Verse 3 again, you shall have no other gods before me. It is a command. It is a demand of loyalty. But it's also one of the sweetest invitations that your ears have ever heard. See, when the Lord requires loyalty to him, what he's doing is saying, you can be free. What he's doing is saying, you can come alive. What he's doing is saying, you can be the person you were supposed to be. What he's doing is that he's saying, you can be unshackled from the things that are exhausting you. What he's saying is you can be unbuckled for the, from the things that are hurting you. See, as the pages of the scriptures go on, here's what the other gods would do, because Kind of to get ahead of us in the story, Israel will walk out of this moment here. And in a few short chapters, I'm not joking you, it's in the Bible, they will begin worshiping a golden cow. And for the rest of the story, they will always let their hearts travel in hope and fear to other things. And and, and let me just explain to you when they would do that. When they would do that, let me just explain to you what their life became. First of all, as they would worship other gods, as I've said before, they would become so deeply weary. They'd be deeply tired and exhausted. This is why the scriptures say things like, if you'll come to me, I'll give you rest. Just as an example, when we worship our children, for those of us who are parents, we will become so deeply tired and it's not because they're waking up in the night. It exhausts us on a deeper level. They become so tired. Here's another thing it would do when they would worship other gods. It's it's ironic, but when they would worship other gods, they couldn't actually enjoy God's blessings to them. 
A good example of this in the scriptures is when God blessed them with manna, with provision in the wilderness. They were so used to worshiping the gods of Egypt and they began to slavishly start gathering and exhausting themselves, trying to work and achieve and gather more. And they became more fearful all the time. They couldn't enjoy his provision. They see his provision, but because their minds and hearts were so given to the gods of Egypt, they, they, they complain of God's provision. They'd say, I wish we were back in slavery. And they said, eating pots of meat. There weren't even pots of meat back there. It was death to their souls. So they couldn't enjoy the provision that God had right in front of them. Do you understand what I mean? See, when our loyalty is run to other things, it's just ironic. It poisons those things. When our loyalty and our hope and fear goes toward career achievement, you will hate your job. When your loyalty runs to your children being exactly perfect, you will resent them when they ask you for a snack. When your heart's loyalty runs to some sort of relationship being exactly perfect, you will loathe being in that person's presence. And on the other side, when we let the Lord have all our loyalty, those things can be what they are, gifts to be enjoyed. So when they would run to other gods, they become so weary, they couldn't enjoy God's provision. A third thing, and it must be, it's probably obvious by now, they would become so deeply disappointed. That's why the scriptures will say things like this, those who hope in the Lord won't be disappointed. There's a place in Jeremiah where God says that I'm a fountain of living water and you could have drunk from me and you could have drunk from me completely freely, but instead you've carved out for yourself these broken jars that cannot hold water and you're trying to drink from them and they're only making you more empty. So that's the thing, when we worship other things, those things began to demand more and more and more from us and give us less and less and less joy and satisfaction. That's why as you achieve in your work and you get paid more, it only makes the pain more painful when you've got plenty of money and you're miserable. It just disappoints so deeply. And Jeremiah pleads with, his pe with God's people saying, but you can't drink from me. Jesus will pick up on this and say, if you drink from me, you won't be thirsty again. They became weary, they couldn't enjoy God's gift, they became so deeply disappointed. And I don't know this fourth category other than just to say it ruined their life. They only descended into deeper sin. They descended into deep sexual sin. They descended, descended into deep violence, that kind of sin. They descended into relationships being broken and severed among families. They descended down into wars and tragedy and famine and plagues and eventually were carted off, stripped naked and drugged off to an exile. That's what the other gods gave them. So in other words, Israel had to learn the hard way that they didn't need another God. And to worship another God would not just be wrong, it would be stupid and foolish.
the last invitation here, I think, that this text demands is that we look to Christ. Because the scriptures teach us that Christ comes as the fulfillment of the law. So in other words, Christ walks on this earth in human skin, never giving his loyalty to anyone except God the Father. And it's his righteousness that is given to you to live and to activate and enjoy in your life, I mean tomorrow. And as if that were not good enough, this same Jesus who is the fulfillment of the law, who gives to us his righteousness, he goes to the cross to die a death for sinners, particularly sinners who give their hearts to lesser things. That's the kind of people he dies for, you and me. And as if that were not good enough, the promise is that his Holy Spirit begins to write his law on our hearts that we can keep it. In other words, you don't need another God. And if by God's grace, we can learn to be people who hear these words and obey them. Our life will not be easier. But we will be really, 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 really glad we did. Let's pray. Lord, we are people whose loyalties are very fickle. People whose loyalties move to lesser things. And I ask by the power of your spirit that you would bring conviction, that you would help us see the dissatisfying nature of the things we worship. Lord, that you would give us the gift of repentance Lord, that you would turn us back, we pray, this week to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.